welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome to the podcast, loyal listeners. Six cases kind of all over the place this week, including some heady ones on business visas and crimmigration. Plus, Nia Chavez is back with a vengeance. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to listener and immigration attorney Jocelyn Cortez, who emailed me this week to tell me that after hearing about Rodriguez v. Garland on the podcast, the recent Fifth Circuit case about in absentia motions to reopen based on defective NTAs, she is getting clients' cases in Texas reopened in record time, including an IJ's recent order stating that, quote, under recent judicial precedent, this court is obligated to rescind an in absentia order of removal when notice requirements are not included in a single document, end quote. Get your motions to reopen filed, everyone. And here's some more. Starting off, we have Cantor v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on November 3rd, 2021. This case is about Niz Chavez and the stop time rule, a sentence I believe I'll be saying for years to come. It is authored by Judge McEwen. As has been so often discussed on the podcast, non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB permits individuals, such as Mr. Cantor, who have been in the United States continuously for at least 10 years and have not been convicted of certain crimes, to have their removal canceled in immigration proceedings and receive green cards, if they warrant it as a matter of discretion, and can establish exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse, parent, or child. The standard is hard to meet even if you qualify, and Congress has capped the annual grants at 4000 a year. But this is how Congress chose to change the law in 1996 when it took away suspension of deportation and 212C relief. So here we are. Here's the thing, though. That 10 years continuous physical presence is subject to a legal fiction. 
Even though the individual may remain in the U.S. for a long time, the 10 years stops as a matter of law under the statute when the non-citizen is served with a notice to appear, or when the non-citizen commits certain crimes. The Supreme Court's Pereira and then Nis Chavez decisions concerned that first circumstance, and held that for an NTA to stop the accrual of continuous physical presence, the NTA must contain the time and location of the non-citizen's first removal hearing, as INA Section 239A requires that NTAs contain. How far that logic can be taken, and in what context it will shake things up, has been the subject of many a podcast episode already, and will be the subject of many more to come. This decision here, however, is squarely in the non-LPR cancellation of removal context, the very context that Pereira and Nis Chavez decided. See, Mr. Cantor was placed in removal proceedings and was actually ordered removed in 2014, before he got the 10 years and before Pereira. But those removal proceedings were initiated with a deficient NTA that lacked the date, time, and location of his first removal hearing. Following the issuance of Pereira in 2018, Mr. Cantor moved to reopen his case with the BIA. Apparently, he had appealed the IJ's decision, and the BIA denied the motion, holding that because he had been ordered removed, he couldn't continue to accrue continuous physical presence. At the most, according to the BIA, Mr. Cantor's continuous physical presence ended in 2014, when he was ordered removed, which was only 8 years and not 10 years after he entered the U.S., That meant that even though he had been in the United States for well over 10 years by 2018, he did not qualify for non-LPR cancellation of removal, and there was no real legal basis for the BIA to reopen his case. The Ninth Circuit reversed. It noted that both Pereira and Nis Chavez relied pretty much entirely on the text of INA Section 248B, the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute, and INA Section 239A, the statute that describes what must be in an NTA. Applying that same text-based analysis here, the Ninth Circuit held that, quote, the language setting out the stop-time rule is unambiguous. A non-permanent residence period of continuous physical presence is deemed to end upon the earlier of two events, which are spelled out in subsections A and B of the rule, end quote. And again, those subsections only spell out two scenarios, service of a compliant NTA or commission of a specified crime. Mr. Cantor committed no such crime, and the NTA was deficient. The statute says nothing about being ordered removed, and so his continuous physical presence never stopped. One could argue, and I'm sure Oil did, that Congress could not have intended this, as the Congress in 1996 probably hoped that a removal order would be the end of it, and could not have foreseen Pereira and Nishavez. Maybe so. But then again, I guess Congress couldn't have foreseen ICE's noncompliance with INA Section 239A either. And in any event, said the Ninth, quote, it is not our role to rewrite the statute, end quote. Rather, quote, this improbable situation is entirely of the government's own making, end quote. The Ninth Circuit therefore sent the matter back to the BIA to consider whether Mr. Cantor otherwise should have his case reopened so that he may apply for discretionary non-LPR cancellation of removal. He still has hills to climb, but at least there's a hill. And perhaps most importantly, the Ninth Circuit has just opened the floodgates for non-citizens everywhere, ordered removed based on deficient NTAs served over 10 years ago, who have qualifying relatives, and who can establish a prima facie case of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to them. 
In conjunction with Rodriguez v. Garland in the Fifth Circuit, discussed on episode 75 of the podcast, deficient NTA motions to reopen are starting to get very, very, very interesting. Congratulations, Luis Cortez and Elaine Ruth Fordyce for petitioner. And that is Cantor v. Garland. Next up is matter of MFO, published by the BIA. More deficient NTAs. In this decision, the BIA held that a notice to appear that does not specify the time or place of a respondent's initial removal hearing does not end the accrual of physical presence for purposes of post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240BB, even if the respondent is later served with a notice of hearing specifying this information. In so holding, the BIA followed the Ninth Circuit's decision in Pozo Sanchez v. Garland, discussed on episode 63 of the podcast, and overruled in part Matter of Vieira Garcia and Ordonez Vieira, discussed on episode 40 of the podcast. Here's why. Mr. MFO is from Guatemala and, it appears, sought asylum at a port of entry. He was placed in removal proceedings by being served with a deficient notice to appear. In immigration court, he claimed that he had been targeted by gangs who were trying to recruit him, and who threatened him in his indigenous dialect when he refused. The immigration judge found Mr. MFO's purported particular social group uncognizable, and denied his alternative application for post-conclusion voluntary departure, which would avoid a removal order, because he had not been in the United States for the required one year before he was served with the notice to appear, as the statute requires. The BIA upheld the IJ on asylum, but only on nexus. Not worth nothing, it assumed without deciding that, quote, indigenous Guatemalan youths who have abstained from joining the street gangs, end quote, is a cognizable particular social group. But the BIA agreed with the IJ that Mr. MFO couldn't show that he was persecuted, or would likely be persecuted, because of this reason. Rather, it appears that the gangs simply wanted to recruit him, irrespective of his indigenous status. The fact that the gangs spoke to and threatened him in his indigenous dialect doesn't necessarily change that, as many people in the area speak the language. The BIA therefore upheld denial of asylum, withholding of removal, and for other reasons, Convention Against Torture Protection. But on post-conclusion voluntary departure, it remanded. Honestly, the BIA pretty much just agreed with Pozo Sanchez v. Garland. It did so mainly because, as with cancellation of removal, the stop-time rule for post-conclusion voluntary departure is expressly linked to service of a notice to appear, as defined at INA Section 239A, and refers to service of the NTA, not multiple documents, like an NTA and then a notice of hearing. That's straight Nish Chavez rationale right there. As Mr. MFO never stopped accruing continuous physical presence, the BIA sent the matter back for a determination of whether Mr. MFO warranted post-conclusion voluntary departure as a matter of discretion, which if granted and if he departs, will again avoid a removal order and the related inadmissibility bar. As I mentioned in so holding, the BIA overruled its contrary decision in matter of Vieira Garcia and Ordonez Vieira. Having just reviewed my notes from episode 40, I'm happy to report that at the time of my review of the case, I mentioned how at least one weekly immigration case law podcaster believed the BIA's rationale on that decision, quote, faulty, end quote. I shall take a lap around my office. 
This decision also expressly overruled matter of Mendoza-Hernandez and Capullo-Cortez, quote, to the extent it conflicts with the court's holding in Chavez, end quote, which I believe is 100%, because I believe it was the exact same issue adjudicated in Niz Chavez. Whether a notice of hearing will implicate the stop-time rule for cancellation of removal purposes. Reminder, it won't. Congratulations, Edgardo Quantania, for respondent. Back to asylum. The BIA denied on nexus grounds for asylum and withholding of removal as well, even though this case arose in the Ninth Circuit, and even though the BIA recognized that there is a lessened nexus standard for withholding of removal in the Ninth Circuit. In the Ninth, as in the Sixth, a withholding applicant must only show that membership in his proposed social group, quote, was or would be a reason for the harm, end quote. This is less than the asylum standard of one central reason. See, for example, Garcia v. Wilkinson discussed on episode 43 of the podcast. There's a circuit split on the issue and a controlling BIA decision, matter of CTL, has also addressed it. And look to footnote 5 of this decision to see where your circuit stands. But honestly, the Ninth Circuit and Sixth Circuit decisions, with a lessened nexus withholding of removal standard, are based on a plain statutory text analysis that may persuade other circuits to reject matter of CTL. And look to footnote 7 if you think the IJ in your case has erred in applying the withholding of removal standard in your circuit. Finally, how about this quote from the BIA? Quote, It is well established that Central American gangs direct harm against anyone and everyone perceived to have interfered with or who might present a threat to their criminal enterprises and territorial power, including those who refuse to join their ranks. End quote. The BIA uses the quote here to support its nexus denial, but Convention Against Torture has no nexus requirement, and that seems like quite the quote for anti-gang-based claims from the Northern Triangle countries. Didn't win the cat day here, but it's worth keeping in your back pockets as is. And that is matter of MFO. Back to the 9th, we have Usa Bakanov v. Garland, published by the 9th Circuit on November 1st, 2021. This decision is about continuances. In the majority opinion, also authored by Judge McEwen, starts out by describing immigration as a, quote, labyrinth, where navigating the asylum system with an attorney is hard enough. Navigating it without an attorney is a Herculean task, end quote. I guess that makes us immigration attorneys Danny DeVito's centaur-like character from Hercules the Cartoon? Also looks like the case arose in San Diego or Otay Mesa, my local hood and possibly one of my old bosses, so I'm going to be extra careful. Mr. Usabakanov was a detained asylum seeker from Kyrgyzstan who did not speak English. He eventually secured the pro bono legal services of Catholic Charities, but a pro bono attorney was unavailable on the date of Mr. Usabakanov's merits hearing. Council, really through Mr. Usubakanov, requested a continuance, which the IJ denied, quote, leaving Mr. Usubakanov to navigate the labyrinth unassisted. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he was not successful, end quote. Now true, the IJ provided Mr. Usubakanov two continuances to find an attorney, about two and a half months in total to prepare his asylum application, and then an additional month and a half to complete the asylum application because he was having great difficulty doing so in English from detention. 
On the day of the merits hearing, Mr. Usubakhanov provided the immigration judge with a written motion for a continuance, possibly crafted with the assistance of Catholic Charities, explaining that Catholic Charities, which again is a pro bono entity, had only recently become aware of the case and needed, among other things, a Russian interpreter to prepare for the matter. Mr. Usubakhanov made clear that he wanted to get out of detention and return to his wife and child in the United States, who were also asylum seekers, who DHS just decided not to detain. But also, of course, through his motion, he was requesting more time. The IJ denied the motion, in part because DHS told the IJ that it knew nothing about Mr. Usubakhanov's son's case. But of course, Judge McEwen writes, quote, the government was in the best position to know about the pending related cases, end quote. As relevant here, the IJ then found Mr. Usubakhanov not credible and denied his claim. But less than two months later, a different non-detained IJ granted Mr. Usubakhanov's wife and child's applications, based on testimony consistent with Mr. Usubakhanov's. If ever there was a case demonstrating the importance of an attorney and the hardship of detention. Mr. Usubakhanov was represented by Catholic Charities on Appeal, and the BIA affirmed the adverse credibility finding. The BIA rejected Mr. Usubakhanov's due process claims and affirmed the denial of a continuance. So if it wasn't clear already, the Ninth Circuit majority reversed. First, the Ninth Circuit started off with an important distinction. Unlike in other continuance cases, Mr. Usubakhanov never waived his constitutional right to counsel. To the contrary, he requested more time, quote, to vindicate that right, end quote. Now, the Ninth Circuit recognizes that, quote, immigration courts bear a crushing caseload and an applicant cannot unreasonably delay the administrative process, which has various component parts and must be managed efficiently by the IJ, end quote. But at the same time, and this is a great quote for continuance appeals, the Ninth Circuit will not, quote, allow a myopic insistence upon expeditiousness to render the right to counsel an empty formality, end quote. That's what the Ninth says happened here. And in doing so, it relied heavily on the First Circuit's analysis in Hernandez v. Bar, discussed way back when on episode 8 of the podcast. Like Ms. Hernandez, Mr. Usubakhanov didn't speak English, wasn't trying to delay his case just to gain the system, and was on the verge of getting an attorney when he requested the continuance. Plus, DHS itself delayed Mr. Usubakhanov's quest for an attorney by providing him a list of pro bono representatives for Pennsylvania, rather than San Diego, apparently under the assumption that he'd be released to Pennsylvania, which never actually happened for some reason. At the end of the day, the Ninth Circuit majority makes clear that there can't be a bright-line rule for continuances, as recent BIA case law seems to desire, and that the facts here tip in Mr. Usubakhanov's favor. Quote, that concludes our inquiry, as a petitioner who is wrongly denied assistance of counsel at his merits hearing need not show prejudice, end quote. Congratulations, Bartas Fakili of the ACLU Foundation of San Diego and Imperial Counties, in addition to Amicus from AIC and Jenner and Block, and of course Catholic Charities for the underlying appeal. From rags to riches on counsel for Mr. Usubakhanov. A little bit more. If you're crafting a due process or continuance challenge for a detained non-citizen, read this case. Not just for legal arguments, but for in-depth factual information based on U.S. government documents and statistics about exactly what it's like for non-citizens to try to litigate their cases from detention. 
Also, and to of course give the dissent its due, Judge Akuta laments the seemingly endless delay that non-citizens can achieve based on the majority's opinion here. And that is Usabukhanov v. Garland. Next up is Gomez v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on November 3rd, 2021. This case is about asylum and related relief. Mr. Gomez is from Brazil, but he's lived in the U.S. since the early 1990s. He has two U.S. citizen children, a stable job, and a partner in the United States. Mr. Gomez also owns land in Brazil, passed on to him by his father, and prior to his removal proceedings, he returned to Brazil regularly to check on his land and his parents. Not sure how, as it appears that he lacks status, but so be it. Prior to and during those trips, members of what appear to be violent workers' rights movements invaded his family land and even killed employees. But in fact, Mr. Gomez apparently tried to relocate his entire family to Brazil in 2009, shipping all of their belongings in a container, but the container went missing for like a year. It turned up in the port of Santos in Brazil, and officials demanded bribes to release it. Mr. Gomez refused, and he was convicted in absentia in Brazil of, quote, failing to pay taxes on the shipping container and unlawfully shipping firearms, end quote. Brazil requested an Interpol red notice, which Interpol issued, and then DHS detained him and initiated these removal proceedings. And therein lies the answer to my question above, actually. Apparently, Mr. Gomez had been using his friend's passport to travel to and from Brazil for years, and so he ended up pleading guilty to making a false statement in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1001A2 in federal court. This is not your average asylum case. In removal proceedings, and as relevant here for the petition for review, Mr. Gomez applied for asylum and related relief, claiming that he'd be persecuted in Brazil based on his political opinion and due to his membership in the particular social group of, quote, landowners in Brazil who oppose corruption, end quote. The IJ and the BIA denied. And the First Circuit did too. First, the First Circuit took a very specific view of exhaustion and held that the court lacked jurisdiction to review Mr. Gomez's argument that he'd be targeted for his membership in the particular social group of, quote, Brazilian landowners, end quote, because below, he'd argue only that he'd be targeted for being a Brazilian landowner who opposes corruption. It doesn't matter that he actually asserted Brazilian landowners in his notice of appeal to the BIA. Quote, a single sentence in a largely administrative notice of appeal does not constitute exhaustion, end quote, particularly when a brief is filed that doesn't argue the issue. Because Mr. Gomez didn't assert the specific particular social group of Brazilian landowners below, he couldn't argue it before the First Circuit. And because he didn't actually argue the cognizability of the particular social group Brazilian landowners who oppose corruption, he waived the whole particular social group issue on petition for review. Rough. Turning then to whether he warranted asylum and withholding of removal due to his political opinion, the First Circuit upheld the BIA. While Mr. Gomez did indeed refuse to pay the bribe at the port, quote, where the statement, I'm against bribery, is made in response to a specific solicitation, and Mr. Gomez intimated that at least part of the reason he would not pay the bribe was because it was too high, the BIA was not compelled to conclude that his statement was an expression of a political opinion. End quote. To the First Circuit, it was more likely that he just didn't want to pay the bribe. 
And even if he did exhibit a political opinion to the First Circuit, quote, it is far more likely that the port official threatened Mr. Gomez merely because he refused to pay the specific bribe being solicited, end quote. Again, not because of a political opinion, according to the First Circuit. So the court upheld the agency's denial of asylum and withholding of removal. One more interesting thing to remember, though. The First Circuit also held, regarding Mr. Gomez's in absentia conviction, that rather than persecution, quote, it is far more likely that he was convicted because he violated Brazilian law, end quote. Fair enough. But that is certainly not the case with in absentia convictions in all countries, or depending on the specific facts even in Brazil. There is case law out there in nearly all circuits that prosecution can constitute persecution, and this case does not foreclose that. Rather, the facts of this case apparently don't support the argument. And that is Gomez v. Garland. Gonna do a big 180 here and discuss VHV Jewelers LLC v. Wolf et al., published by the 11th Circuit on November 1st, 2021. Gonna change it up a lot. This is a business immigration case challenging USCIS's denial of an L-1 non-immigrant visa petition under the Administrative Procedures Act, or APA. Such cases are few and far between, and it arises in KKTP's home court. So here we go. Plaintiff VHV Jewelers petitioned to extend the L-1 non-immigrant classification of one of its employees. That means the non-immigrant employee already had temporary status in the U.S., but it was running out. USCIS denied the extension request, VHV sued in federal court, and the district court judge granted the U.S. government's motion for summary judgment. In this case, the 11th Circuit affirmed. To understand why, we must dive deep into the world of L's. L non-immigrant visas allow, quote, multinational companies to transfer managerial and executive employees from foreign offices to their counterparts in the United States, end quote. So essentially, the non-citizen who the company is petitioning for must be an executive or a manager abroad and must be coming to the U.S. to work for the same company or a subsidiary or parent company as a manager or executive here. More requirements, but that's the gist of it. Quote, for an employee to qualify for L-1 status as an executive, the INA requires that the employer bear a certain set of high-level responsibilities, and that the employee primarily engage in those specified duties, end quote. L petitions are filed with USCIS by the sponsoring company. If the non-citizen is in the United States already in L or another non-immigrant status, they receive L non-immigrant status in the United States. And if they're outside the United States, the approved petition then permits their entry into the U.S., provided that they're otherwise admissible. Now, the L application here actually involves a subset of L petitions for new U.S. companies, called new office petitions. Quote, new office petitions require evidence that the transferee was employed abroad for one continuous year in the three-year period preceding the filing of the petition in an executive or managerial capacity, and evidence that the intended United States operation, within one year of the approval of the petition, will support an executive or managerial position, end quote. So with new office petitions, you've got a little bit more leeway about the viability of the U.S. subsidiary or parent company. 
The regulations have specific definitions and requirements for what exactly a manager or executive are, and what's required, and it gets really complicated. I could go down a rabbit hole here if I'm not careful because L's are complicated, and this decision is filled with regulatory definitions. Check out my interview with KKTP partner Helena Tetzeli for a bit more on L's. So for now, therefore, and sticking with the facts of this case, VHV Jewelers had its headquarters in India and opened a new office in Atlanta, where it hoped to employ the L1 beneficiary as its CEO and executive. And USCIS actually granted the new office petition for the beneficiary in 2017. But such new office petitions are only valid for one year, so they needed to apply again in 2018. This time, USCIS denied, holding that VHV jewelers had failed to provide sufficient evidence to show that the beneficiary was an executive abroad when he worked in India, and that he would be an executive in the United States. That first approval was not and is not binding on subsequent applications, even when the applications are essentially the same. VHV jewelers sued in federal court under the Administrative Procedures Act, arguing, as it must, that USCIS's decision was, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with the law, end quote. As I mentioned, the district court ruled in favor of the government, and the 11th Circuit affirmed. But as an initial matter, the court did not rule for the government on jurisdictional grounds. They couldn't, due to Canale Media holding LLC et al. v. USCIS, which I believe was the last L1 case decided by the 11th Circuit, discussed on episode 11 of the podcast, and, shameless plug alert, was litigated by KKTP and argued by Ed Ramos. I gotcha, Ed. Instead, the 11th Circuit agreed with the substance of USCIS's decision. It held that to be an executive, the beneficiary must, quote, direct the management, which means that an executive must guide, order, command, or instruct the management. In other words, an executive manages the management, end quote. That's the new rule for L's that everybody needs to become aware of. The 11th Circuit reached this conclusion based in large part on how Justice Scalia has interpreted the word direct in an oft-relied-upon treatise. Executives must manage a manager, so says the 11th Circuit, which is problematic for small companies who might not have that many employees. While this quote does not foreclose the possibility that employees of small organizations would be eligible for L-1 visa classification, end quote, the 11th Circuit recognizes that it's going to be a problem. Small business owners in the 11th Circuit beware. The court held that USCIS didn't fail to consider evidence, which might support an APA challenge, but rather had merely failed to give the weight to that evidence that VHV jewelers wanted it to. But that's not an appealable APA challenge. Tough case that's a must-read in the 11th Circuit before you submit or challenge your L1 petitions. And that is VHV Jewelers LLC v. Wolf et al. Returning to the First Circuit, we have Mishalingi v. Garland, published on November 2, 2021. This case is about credibility. Mr. Mashalingi is from Rwanda and received a visitor visa to come to the United States temporarily to attend his son's wedding in 2018. On the final day authorized to be in the United States, he affirmatively applied for asylum and related relief with USCIS. In his application, he claimed that individuals who he learned later were police, 
had kidnapped and tortured him in Rwanda for being a cameraman on a journalistic report exposing that government officials were paying high school girls for sex. ICE detained him a year later, the decision doesn't say why, giving jurisdiction of the application to the immigration court. Mr. Mashalingi reiterated his claims in court, although he stated a bit differently that he knew immediately that his kidnappers were police. He testified to the same during his individual hearing, but appears to have gotten a few dates confused. He described terrible torture at a police station. The IJ denied by making an adverse credibility finding. Relevantly, the IJ believed that Mr. Mashalingi fabricated his visa application. He didn't actually have a son who was marrying, apparently. The IJ also noted that the dates he testified to regarding his kidnapping and the hospital stay that he testified to didn't match up with the date that he unquestionably was interviewed for his visa. The IJ also noted a medical report was inconsistent with his testimony regarding injuries, Mr. Mashalingi was evasive in some of his answers to questions, and his visa photo, which was apparently taken very close to the time he testified he was allegedly wounded in the face, showed no wounds. As I mentioned, Mr. Mashalingi also got some dates wrong, was inconsistent as to when he learned that the kidnappers were police, and had some other apparent issues. Considered altogether, the IJ made an adverse credibility finding, and the BIA affirmed. The First Circuit did too, under the Substantial Evidence Review, for quote, Given that superior coin, a vantage, courts typically afford considerable deference to a trier's credibility determinations, end quote. Some great quotes this week. Hope I said the word coin correctly. While Mr. Mashalingi explained a lot of the inconsistencies, the inconsistencies were still there, and the IJ was not required to accept Mr. Mashalingi's explanations, particularly as there were many. Indeed, quote, part of the IJ's function, qua fact finder, is to sift wheat from chaff and assess the persuasive force of explanations that are offered for apparent inconsistencies, end quote. Again, quotes galore. Plus, as some of the counter-evidence provided by Mr. Mashalingi was an affidavit and letter form, not subject to cross-examination, the IJ properly gave that evidence limited weight, a rule that, by the way, applies no matter who submits that evidence, not subject to cross-examination. Just saying. The adverse credibility finding was therefore upheld, and it infected the asylum withholding and CAT applications. So despite a hard-fought case by pro bono attorneys, Mr. Mashalingi lost his case. One more quote for you, this time kind of good for non-citizens. Somewhat contrary to some other decisions discussed on the podcast, the Tenth Circuit comes to mind, I believe, and notwithstanding the regulations, the First Circuit stated that, quote, there are no hard and fast rules for authenticating foreign public documents in immigration proceedings, end quote. A petitioner's own testimony may suffice. Used against Mr. Mashalingi here, but a generally favorable rule for asylum seekers everywhere. And that is Mashalingi v. Garland. Finally, we have Granados v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on November 4th, 2021. We're going to end with Crimmigration. This one is all about CIMTs. Mr. Granados became an LPR in 2001. 
but he got addicted to drugs and he developed a bit of a criminal record, including Virginia petty larceny, and felony eluding under Virginia Code Section 46.2-817b. Virginia petty larceny is apparently a CIMT. So if eluding is also a CIMT, that means Mr. Granados has been convicted of two or more crimes involving moral turpitude, not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct, meaning he loses his green card and is subject to removal under INA Section 237A2AII. The IJ and the BIA held that eluding in Virginia is a CIMT. The Fourth Circuit affirmed. It first held that, no dreaming immigration attorneys, the phrase CIMT is not unconstitutionally vague. Or to put it in constitutional terms, the term does not, quote, fail to give ordinary people fair notice of the conduct it punishes, and is not so standardless that it invites arbitrary enforcement, end quote. CIMT precedent requires a certain mental state and degree of harm to qualify, and the Supreme Court held the term constitutional in 1951. Although the Supreme Court has recently held that other statutes are unconstitutionally vague, CIMTs are apparently different. The definition is firmly tethered to the categorical approach, and it's not proven itself unworkable. Really, it seems like the CIMT definition will likely remain unless and until Congress acts or the Supreme Court decides to overturn DeGeorge from 1951. But keep the arguments coming. The Fourth Circuit also held that the term did not improperly delegate a legislative function from Congress to the executive. Congress can delegate such things to the executive so long as Congress provides clear guidance. For that reason, quote, the Supreme Court has only twice invalidated statutes on non-delegation grounds, and only where Congress has failed to articulate any policy or standard, end quote. Again, the CIMT definition passes the test because courts have interpreted that to entail, quote, two essential elements, a culpable mental state and reprehensible conduct, end quote. That's a sufficient standard because, quote, to repeat, a culpable mental state requires at least criminal recklessness, end quote. Remember that, though, to combat any counterargument, possibly based in matter of woo, that statutes, even overly reprehensible ones, can be CIMTs, if they require less than a recklessness, mens rea. Anyway, the Fourth Circuit held that there was a sufficient standard for CIMTs, meaning that an impermissible delegation of a legislative function to ICE and IJs had not occurred. Fine. So then, does Virginia felony eluding meet the totally constitutional and easy-to-understand definition of a CIMT? It does. Applying the categorical approach, the Fourth Circuit first held that the crime requires a sufficiently culpable mental state because it requires that the defendant, quote, received a visible or audible signal from a law enforcement officer to bring his motor vehicle to a stop, and then drove his vehicle in a willful and wanton disregard of such signal so as to interfere with or endanger the operation of the law enforcement vehicle or a person, end quote. That's apparently well above recklessness says the Fourth Circuit, mainly based on how Virginia defines willful and wanton. The Fourth Circuit rejected Mr. Granados's argument that the mens rea described only the flight of the vehicle, rather than the endangerment of people or police officers. The Fourth Circuit held that the statute includes the requisite mental state, and nothing indicated that that mental state applied only to a portion of the statute, and assuming that that would even matter for the CIMT analysis. Indeed, the phrase, quote, so as to, end quote, 
as the Virginia statute uses in connection with the willful and wanton mental state, has itself been read by courts as indicative of a culpable mental state. And one of those courts happens to be the Virginia Supreme Court. So Mr. Granados lost that argument. The Fourth Circuit also rejected Mr. Granados' argument that the statute does not necessarily describe morally turpitudinous conduct because it includes an express affirmative defense where, quote, the defendant shows he reasonably believed he was being pursued by a person other than a law enforcement officer, end quote. Extrapolating on this affirmative defense, Mr. Granados' very smart attorneys argued that it shows that someone can be convicted simply by being negligent when they ignore law enforcement officers. That is, that their belief that they're not being pursued by law enforcement officers is not reasonable. The Fourth Circuit rejected this argument because, quote, affirmative defenses are not considered under the categorical approach, end quote. Dagger to the heart. Plus, that affirmative defense doesn't necessarily mean negligence, as Mr. Granados' attorneys argued. Finally, the Fourth Circuit held that the crime of felony eluding in Virginia is sufficiently reprehensible the second requirement for a crime to be a CIMT. And that's because speeding combined with statutes where, quote, actual endangerment or interference is required, the reprehensible nature of the conduct becomes indisputable, end quote. It's not akin to simply obstruction of justice. Take note, however, based on Fourth Circuit case law, simple hit and run is not a CIMT. So that's your baseline to argue that other vehicular crimes are not CIMTs. With a quote fit to end an episode, the court concluded by stating that, quote, America is a welcoming country, but Congress has made plain that its hospitality is strained when people commit the sort of offense at issue in this case, end quote. And that is Granados v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.